Hi everyone. This week's newsletter focuses on the Supreme Court arguments around the Texas abortion law known as SB 8 that happened on Monday. It was really interesting to hear the justices in action and if you haven't done so before, I recommend listening to the audio. Don't worry, it's linked in the story. Hearing the interruptions, the disdain, and the nervousness really brings it alive for me anyway. But before we get into the weeds of ex parte young, let's take a look at some news updates. I will be making a plan to head to Roosevelt Island in New York City to see this fabulous girl puzzle monument soon. Back in 1887, investigative journalist Nellie Bly acted her way into being committed to the Blackwell Asylum to report on the deplorable conditions in the hospital. The monument is not only a memorial to Bly, but to women of all races and backgrounds. With her historic election, Michelle Wu becomes the first person who is not a white man to become the mayor of Boston. Wu's parents immigrated from Taiwan and she attended both Harvard University and law school. Her two main policy priorities are to create a fair free public transportation system and to create a rent control system. She will be stymied by a 1994 referendum that banned rent control statewide, but feels that she can create a workaround. Vaginal laser therapy has been touted for a number of years as a way for menopausal women to maintain lubrication in spite of their plummeting estrogen levels. But until now, there have been no quality studies showing that it actually works. Costing two to $3,000 out of pocket, it is a big money maker for doctors. But now there is a new study that shows it is a sham procedure. As Dr. Jen Gunter puts it, Quote, people with vaginas deserve quality care, not inadequately studied expensive interventions. Will the Supreme Court overturn the Texas abortion law? Now we wait. On Monday, the Supreme Court heard two cases regarding the unprecedented Texas law outlawing abortions after a quote-unquote heartbeat can be heard at or about six weeks gestation. What makes the law unprecedented is the enforcement mechanism that leaves the state out of the equation and deputizes individuals to enforce the law and provides them a $10,000 bounty. The court agreed to hear the cases on an accelerated schedule, one not seen since Bush v. Gore, indicating the importance of the cases. The court will hear Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health on December 1st, where they will hear arguments questioning the core tenet of Roe v. Wade using fetal viability as a me measure for determining when abortions are legally allowed. On its face, the law, known as SB 8, is unconstitutional because it runs afoul of a woman's constitutionally protected right to an abortion up until fetal viability. The first case heard, Whole Woman's Health v. Jackson, hinged on whether the way that the law was structured to avoid any challenges is constitutional. The arguments were very technical and centered around a 1908 case called Ex Parte Young that allows lawsuits in federal courts against state officials to bar them from enforcing unconstitutional laws, but prohibits injunctions against state courts. 
Because SB 8 found a loophole in that law by allowing only individuals to bring cases, federal courts cannot hear the cases. Mr. Mark Herron, who argued on behalf of the Center for Reproductive Rights, argued that the filing of the lawsuits is the crucial part of the law to strike down because of the way that SB 8 is structured to bankrupt anyone sued. He recommended relief by allowing the court clerks to be sued as agents of the state. Because there is no end to the number of plaintiffs that could sue, the law turns doctors who perform abortions and the clinics where they work into permanent plaintiffs. He described the chilling effect of the law in that it makes the judicial system an enforcer rather than a neutral arbitrator just by simply accepting a case. What was particularly interesting to me as a listener was the fact that no one brought up the fact that pregnancy is a time-dependent condition, that people right now are being denied their constitutional right to an abortion in Texas. There was, no men- there was mention that abortions in Texas have decreased by 50%, but that was about it. There seemed to be no sense of urgency around the issues at hand, but I digress. It was also interesting to hear both Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh express their skepticism as to whether Texas can create an enforcement mechanism that protects itself from judicial review. It is possible that they will allow the lawsuit to stand, although no one should be under any false hope that means they are opening, open to keeping Roe v. Wade as law. In opposing arguments, we heard from Mr. Judd E. Stone and Mr. Jonathan Mitchell of Texas. Mr. Stone had the audacity to refer to an abortion after six weeks as quote-unquote late term. Mr. Mitchell told the court that if you do not like the Texas law, then go petition Congress to pass the Women's Health Protection Act that codifies abortion rights as law. He seemed to forget that abortion is already a constitutionally protected right. In the second case, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogar, who had just been sworn in on Friday, argued that SB 8 ultimately undermines the Supreme Court's authority to enforce the Constitution. She said, quote, No constitutional decision from this court is safe. That would be an intolerable state of affairs, and it cannot be the law. Our constitutional guarantees cannot be that fragile, and the supremacy of federal court cannot be that easily subject to manipulation, unquote. General Prelogar was subjected to a large amount of interruptions from male justices, especially Justice Gorsuch, but she continued to press her arguments with poise. So what are the ramifications of these arguments? If the Supreme Court allows whole women's health to continue with their suit, then SB 8 will most likely be struck down as unconstitutional in district court, and abortion laws in Texas should revert to where they were before SB 8 was passed. If the court does not allow the suit to go forth, then SB 8 will still be the law, and abortions after six weeks gestation will be illegal in Texas. Since the court is hearing the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health case in exactly one month, we may find that SB 8 is moot. If the court finds that pre-viability is no longer legal protection for having an abortion, 
then six-week heartbeat bills or outright bans are likely to become the law of the land in almost half of the country. I get chills just saying it. So what effect has the Texas law had so far? As mentioned above, abortions in Texas have decreased by 50% since the inception of the law on September 1st. Hospitals are erring on the side of legal caution. In an interview with NPR's Michelle Martin, Dr. Gazala Moyedi, an OBGYN in Texas, said, quote, I, just this week, received two separate referrals, one for a patient with very severe diabetes, causing very severe pregnancy complications that will make life for her pregnancy impossible, but will also endanger her life as well. She has no options for abortion care in the state. And I received another consultation for someone with a pregnancy that has a very severe genetic diagnosis, again, not compatible with life. Continuing the pregnancy could endanger her health, but she's not able to get care in this state. Physicians and health care providers are prevented from offering life-saving care. Rewire News also published a piece quoting more Texas doctors here. Dr. Moedi also noted that she is taking care of many more patients from Texas at her Oklahoma office. And because so many people are coming from Texas to Oklahoma, the Oklahoma folks needing an abortion are going to Kansas. It's a serious domino effect, and that only takes into account those who can afford the time and money to travel for an abortion. And so, now we wait. Attorneys on both sides of the argument expect a quick decision given that the court accelerated the argument portion of the case. Deep breaths, everybody.